We're back in the book of Acts. Actually, we're going to be starting the book of Acts this morning. Uh, but I found out some additional information that I wanted to share with you relative to the introduction of the book of Acts. We know who wrote the book of Acts, right? Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and really, he wrote also the gospel of Luke. And if you were to look at both of them in compression, you'd say Luke was part one, Acts part two of the history of the Christian church, right? Parts one and two. And who did he write it to? Oh, Theophilus, right. Yeah, he was born, and his father looked down at that cradle, and he said, oh, my God, the Theophilus baby I've ever seen. No, he didn't say that, did he? No, no. Theophilus means... Lover of God, lover of God. And we know that that probably wasn't his real name, but he called him, oh, most excellent Theophilus, and that title is reserved for those who are high officials in the Roman government. And so we believe that he was a Roman official, and that's who Luke was writing Luke and the book of Acts to, but we think he had a very specific purpose for writing that, not only covering the history of the early church, but a defense or an apologetic for Christianity, as well as a brief, a legal brief and a defense for whom? Paul, Paul, who was going to be going through trial. He was going in through trials in Jerusalem, three in specifically, and then he goes to trial in Rome. And so it's believed that this is Paul's lawyer who became a Christian. He's a convert, a Roman who converted to Christianity, but actually was Paul's lawyer, and he's writing this brief for Paul's defense, for a defense of Christianity. Now, what do we know about Luke? Luke was a Gentile, right? What else do we know about Luke? He was a doctor. Luke was a doctor, Dr. Luke. And he was Paul's personal physician. Now, uh, isn't it amazing that God the Holy Spirit would have the Dr. Luke record for us in Luke chapter 2, what kind of a birth? A virgin birth, miraculous, right? And then Luke would also record a lot of the miracles that had taken place, and he'd record the resurrection of Jesus Christ, although he was a man of science, but he was also a man of faith and believed, right? That was true of Luke. Luke was Paul's traveling companion, wasn't he? And every time Paul took a sea voyage, Luke was always present with him. I think he had a problem with being on the sea, maybe a little <laughs> seasickness possibly. Hmm? And so we know that about Luke. Luke was not just a traveling companion of Paul's, a doctor, a Gentile, but he was also a writer. And we know that from his writings, and he writes very well. As a matter of fact, the reason why we know he's a physician is because He uses so many medical terms in both the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. We'll see that, yeah. And not only was he a writer, but he was a historian, a very good historian, really writing down very exactly, succinctly, what had taken place in the early church. Now, Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, primary source was? Matthew, Matthew. Mark's Gospel, primary source was? Peter, that's why we call it Peter's gospel sometimes. But then John, the primary source of John's gospel, John himself, he was a disciple. But Luke, now that changes completely. Luke's primary source, because he wasn't one of the earlier disciples, was who? Mary. Mary in particular when he wrote the gospel, right? Who would know these things that he had written with regard to the birth narrative more than Mary? And Luke, being a physician and having such a good bedside manner, not all doctors have a good bedside manner, do they? No, but Luke seemed to have a good bedside Mary where he could draw all of these things out of Mary because she pondered many of these things in her heart and she would keep them close, you know. But he gave her the opportunity to really share those things. Uh, hometown for Luke? Antioch. 
Antioch was considered the Paris of the known world. Antioch is where they were first called Christians. That's right. Antioch is where we were first called Christians, the people of the way. That's what they, how they referred to us initially. But that's in Antioch, and that's where Luke was originally formed from. And uh, let's see, what else do we know? Well, go to chapter 24, verse 29. Acts 24, 29. There's no 29. 27. <laughs> and it says in Acts 24, 27, but after two years, Prusius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Now, what had happened in two years previously? What was going on for the two years? It was Paul's arrest. Paul was arrested for two years. Now, during that two years, Luke was his traveling companion. Luke was with him most often 24-7. Uh, but during that two-year period, where, during Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, it gave Luke the opportunity to really do an interview with all of the parties present, Mary and the other disciples. And that's when we believe he actually penned what? The gospel. The gospel. His two years in Jerusalem during Paul's imprisonment is when he would have penned the gospel of Luke to Theophilus, this defense of the Christian faith as well as a defense of Paul, right? Go with me, and I hope I have this verse correct, 28, verse 30. There is a 28, you know. Twenty-eight thirty, and it says that then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. What's the context of this particular verse? House arrest where? In Rome. Isn't that interesting that the gospel goes from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem, or Jerusalem, right, to the Gentile capital of Rome. And how long was Paul there in his first imprisonment, first Roman imprisonment? Was it in his own rented house for two years? And what do you think Luke, his companion, would have written then during that imprisonment? The book of Acts. The book of Acts. Yeah. Is this new information for you, I hope? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Let's see. What else did I want to share with you about that? Paul gave his testimony no less than three times. He's the principal character in the book of Acts. It says the Acts of the Apostles. I think it could probably be better titled the Acts of the Numahegiosune. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Holy Spirit through two principal individuals. We could divide the book in the ministry of Peter to the Jews and the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles to the Goyam, right? So you could divide the book that way according to the two personalities that are prominent within the book. Not all of the apostles, but specifically Peter and Paul. And most of the material is devoted to Paul. Why? Because it's a defense of Paul, a legal brief, right? Yeah. The book can also be divided regionally, right? Because Jesus told his disciples, you're going to go, therefore, and be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the first few chapters deal with the, the acts of 
Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they're in Jerusalem, and then not just Jerusalem, but then go to Judea, Samaria, and then we see how the gospel had gone out into those regions of Judea, Samaria, and then lastly, to the ends of the earth, the uttermost regions of the world. And so the book could be divided that way as well, as well, the gospel's progress to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Paul not only gave his testimony three times, he was tried three times, but three times the Romans declared that he was just like Jesus. Pilate, time and again, declared Jesus innocent. Who were those antagonists? Who were the ones that were so aggressive against Jesus, really had, had pressured the Romans to crucify him? The Jews, the Judaizers. Who were the ones that were so aggressive, so pressured? Felix, Festus, and then Rome to martyr Paul, the Jews, the Jews. You see, if you go through the Gospels, you find out that the, the Romans didn't really have a problem with Jesus or Paul or even Christianity as long as we were tolerant of all of those other isms. Hmm? There's a lot of similarities because the early church was concerned. I, was, I found this interesting in my study, my reading, is that there was a, a large concern initially within the church that the church would divide into two sects. There would be the Jewish church led by Peter, and then there would be the Gentile church led by Paul. And there was a deep concern that that would take place, and Luke understood that. So in Luke's writing, the book of Acts, we see tremendous similarities between the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul. One wasn't supreme over the other, but they were equal. As I was looking at it, some of the similarities, they both performed miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and seeing visions, both of them. Both of them, it's recorded for us that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. No Holy Spirit, no salvation, right? You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be a believer. We'll talk more about that as we get into the text. But both of them filled with the Holy Spirit. Both of them preached like Pastor Red, long messages. <laughs> I'll try to keep it short this morning, I promise. I'm not good at keeping promises. <laughs> But both of them preached long messages, long sermons, both of them with such boldness because of the power of the Holy Spirit that was within them, right? Yeah, both of them were imprisoned, but both had miraculous releases from prison by God, both Peter and Paul. Yeah, both refused to be worshipped, unlike today's celebrity cults and Christianity, it's sad. Sad the people that try to take the glory for themselves that belongs to God only, you see. No, none of the apostles, neither Paul nor Peter, would ever take to themselves the glory that belonged to God alone. Whose church is it? Yeah, yeah. So, beloved, don't offend me by saying, oh, Pastor Ritt, I've been in your church. It's not my church. It's only one who is the head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. Well, Matthew, uh, let's see now. Matthew ends his gospel, how? With the resurrection. Mark ends his gospel, how? With the ascension. John ends his gospel with the promise of the second coming. Luke ends his gospel, how? The promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's how he ends the gospel. Go, go to the gospel of Luke. Go to the last chapter. 
verse 49. Verse 49, chapter 24 of Luke's gospel. And he says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in this city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. So who's he speaking of? Yeah, the person and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it wonderful having the Holy Spirit within us? Having the Holy Spirit among us? Having the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to mentor us, to tutor us? Oh, how remiss we would be, how deficient our life would be if we did not have the Holy Spirit. If we were dependent upon our own energies and talents and devices, you know. So it ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that's where exactly Acts picks up with that same promise and seeing it being fulfilled. But Luke records for us in chapter 24 and verse 2 that when the women came to the tomb, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. The stone was rolled away to gain entrance into the tomb to see that it was empty. He's not there. He is risen. And that stone, that stone had been cast, in, cast into the ocean or the sea. The sea always spoke of what? In a figurative sense? The world. And so what happens when you cast a stone into the water? It begins to ripple, doesn't it? And so that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts recorded for the ripples that had taken place as it went in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. This truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, power over Satan. His head was crushed, right? Yeah, sin had been defeated, praise the Lord. But we see the records of these ripples as they had taken place. Go with me to chapter 6, verse 7 for a minute. Luke, uh, no, Acts, Acts, somebody. Acts chapter 6. This ripple after Pentecost. Chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We see this rippling taking place, this effect. Go to chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. Who was apprehended by the Holy Spirit just prior to this? Saul, who was later called Paul, right? And it is an amazing that this one man single-handedly was causing such havoc within the church that his apprehension brought peace among the churches. Wow. Wow. But his zeal for propagating the gospel was far greater than his persecution of the early church, wasn't it? Yeah, but nonetheless, verse 31, then the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Ripple, 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 ripple. Go to chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 24, what does it say? But the word of God grew and multiplied. Go to chapter 16, verse 5. 
this rippling effect. The tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away, cast into the sea. The belief, the understanding of the gospel among the Gentiles. Look at chapter 16, verse 5. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Daily. One more. Go to chapter 19. Verse 20. And the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the, the progress of the gospel through the person of the Holy Spirit and the instrument of these human instruments that were used, Peter for the Gentiles, Paul, excuse me, Peter for the Jews, Paul for the Gentiles, and its progress throughout the known world at that time. The Acts of the Apostles are still going on? Through whose life? Through yours. Through yours. We have a responsibility now that we would share the truth of the gospel. There is only one truth. Is that right? There is only one faith, one baptism, one Lord who's over all. There's only one way to enter into heaven. Oh, erroneously, many believe the lie today that all faiths lead to God. Well, it's true that everyone will end up before God eventually. Well, isn't that true? Everyone. But there's only one way to gain entrance into his kingdom. And that's through the person of Jesus Christ. He made it very clear, the exclusivity of Christ. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You can come to me by no other than by my dear son. Amen? Yeah, that's a little more background information that I wanted to share with you. Uh, I think that's all. Uh, as I pick up a little more information, I always like to, to share it with you, my, my family. I hope it edifies you. But we see that uh, as we go through this, let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account, the former account was the gospel of Luke, that I made, O Theophilus, that he made to the same man both books. Isn't that interesting? Both letters were written to the same individual. And as I had shared, I read recently, that some believe, theorize that he was Paul's lawyer, making a defense, not just an, apolo an apologetic for the Christian faith, but a defense for Paul and his innocence, which was declared three times. Until the day, it says, uh, the former account made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. The former account is Luke's recording Christ's ministry here on earth. Everything he did, everything he taught. But aren't we so glad we have the Apostle Paul to tell us what it all meant in his epistles? But the acts of Jesus Christ are still going on. It just isn't from earth. They're going on where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now in heaven. But it's still he that's doing the work, isn't it? As Paul would rightly record in the book of Philippians, it is God who works within me both to and to. Yeah, you don't have the desire, nor do you have the ability to serve God in any acceptable way, least he give it to you. Do, do you know that? Do you understand that? What do we call that? Sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. Completely unmerited. Which of you deserve the love of God? What do we deserve? The wrath of God, right? Not the love of God. Oh, but God so loved that he gave. 
that former account, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach on earth, but now he's doing and teaching from heaven, the right hand of God the Father, until the day that he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. They weren't self-nominated? Maybe one. Maybe one decided he was going to be apostle on his own. Maybe one said, hey, I want to be one among you. Who was that? Judas, the betrayer. So you got to be very careful and discern what has God called you to do, chosen you to do. If it's of your own ambition, your own desire, your own inspiration, it's not going to be fruitful. And it will be a very frustrating experience. But when you walk in God's will for your life, as he's chosen, not chosen just to save you, but chosen to use you. Nobody's a spectator in the church, are they? No one is called to be a spectator. It's not a spectator sport. Everyone's chosen, first and foremost, to know God and enjoy him forever. When you know him, you love him. And the more you love him, the more you desire to serve him. And I I hope that as you grow in your understanding of God, you're enjoying him more and more and more. It puts that joy in your heart. As Peter would say, where else would we go? Where else? You're it, Lord. Hmm? Whom he had chosen. No, we don't self-nominate. God chooses. To whom, verse 3, he also presented himself alive after suffering many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke is the one who records for us that, that the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ occurred for 40 days, and there were no less than 10 post-resurrection appearances of Christ to the disciples. We went through that first portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we call the Resurrection chapter. And we saw the evidences, the proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's some who deny that today, but it's undeniable. The evidence is overwhelming. One would say, and I read one commentator, said there's more evidence for the resurrection of Christ than there is the existence of George Washington. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, infallible, indisputable proofs of the resurrection. And he spoke to them of the things pertaining what? Thank you. The kingdom of God. Thank you, my dear. The kingdom of God. Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. And we talked at length about that last time. we were Now, it's very, very important, beloved, that you understand when you're reading the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, you understand which kingdom they're referring to. Most people don't have the understanding of the kingdom program of God. The first kingdom of God is what we call the universal, eternal kingdom. It's eternal because it's everlasting. It's universal because it's everywhere. God rules and reigns everywhere and for all time. That's the universal kingdom. We talked about the spiritual kingdom. The spiritual kingdom is comprised of everyone who is indwelt by the spirit of God. You make up the spiritual kingdom. I would believe that most of you here, most of you in my hearing, you're part of that spiritual kingdom. I would hope and pray. And if you don't believe you are, don't know you are, see me after. I'll spend as much time as necessary to help you understand that. So we talked about the universal kingdom. We talked about the spiritual kingdom. What was the third kingdom? The theocratic kingdom. And that began with whom? Moses, a mediatorial kingdom where God had his representatives here on earth. Moses was the first. And then... Yahshua, Joshua in the Hebrew is what? 
Yeshua, Yeshua. You know, now if you're from New York, you have no problem pronouncing that Hebrew name. Because when you answer a question in the affirmative from New York, you say, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, representatives were Moses and Joshua, and then the judges. And the last judge, first prophet? Samuel. And then it became a monarchy. And Samuel anointed who? Saul, the first king. And then after Saul, David the beloved, right? Oh, David's coming back to reign, co-reign with Christ, you know, in Jerusalem. We're going to get a chance to meet David. I've been always longing to meet David, a man with a whole heart for God. Yeah. And, and then the end of the monarchy, the theocratic kingdom of God, ended with which king? Zedekiah. Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah was carried away to Babylon. He was carried away to Babylon when? Yeah, when you said, 586 B.C., right? The last siege of Jerusalem, the last of the three deportations of the Jews to Babylon was when Zedekiah, the monarchy, ended, the theocratic kingdom was over, and it began what we call the times of the Gentiles, Gentiles prophesied by Daniel, prophesied by Isaiah, prophesied by Ezekiel. This, these kingdom of the Gentiles would be the Babylonian kingdom, and then the Medo-Persian kingdom, and then the Grecian empire, and then... The Roman Empire, and then the revived Roman Empire. As you read Daniel chapter 2 through chapter 7, you see the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the vision of Daniel describing all of these world-governing empires that would arise and become the kingdom of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were reigning over that area of Israel, or what we call Palestine, but just for a season. Now, sandwiched in that time of the Gentiles, towards the end of that time, would begin what we call the dispensation of the the church age, yeah. Now, we're going to be seeing that as we move into chapter 2 in 2, 3, 4, 5 weeks, I don't know. No, maybe next week. As we get into chapter 2, we're going to see the birth of the church at Pentecost. When Pentecost had fully come. When, literally, in the, the Greek grammar, when he's saying when Pentecost was fulfilled. The Feast of Pentecost. Every one of the feasts are all commemorating something God had done in the past, the seven feasts of Israel, but every one of them anticipatory of something that God is going to do in the future. The first four feasts, the major feasts of Israel, were literally fulfilled on the very day. What they represented in type, sign, and symbol, Christ and the Holy Spirit fulfilled literally, right? The first three, what was the first one? Passover, Pesach, right? Second one? Unleavened bread. The third one? First fruits. All during that week of Passover, when he was crucified, he was buried, and our sins buried with him. Feast of unleavened bread. And then, and then that first day of the week, that Sunday morning, what happened? Up from the grave he arose. Huh? Wonderful, right? Every, listen, every Sunday morning that we come together, it's a mini celebration of what? The resurrection. Don't let anybody tell you you're supposed to be worshiping on Saturday. No, 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 no. The Seventh-day Adventists, I love my brothers and sisters there, but they're just wrong about that. The early church began to worship on Sundays because that was the day he rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, right? The First Fruits unto God, as Paul would describe it. And then what's that feast in the summer, 50 days later? Pentecost. And what happened on Pentecost? The church is birthed. 
What's unique about Pentecost? When they offer the loaf offerings, what do they offer? Two loaves. What's specific about those two loaves of bread that they offer? They're leaven. Leaven. What's leaven a type of? Oh, why leaven? Why are these two loaves offered to God like no other feast, no other grain offering with leaven? Why? Because we come to God just as we are, Jew and Gentile, sinful as we are, but in repentance, asking for his forgiveness, and then he cleanses us. Are we sinless? No. No. But we are sinning less. (laughs) Yeah, when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit resides within you, and he's cleaning up your life. One of the fellows at the men's study yesterday said, why doesn't he just do it all at once? Why doesn't he do it all at once? The shock would kill you. (laughs) It cleans you up all at once, right? Yeah. But the Holy Spirit has his agenda, and progressively, you're becoming more and more Christ-like. More and more the man or woman God wants you to be. This sanctification process. Hmm? Two loaves, Jew, Gentile, just as you are. But he never wants to leave you the way you are. Don't let anybody lie to you and tell you that. When the Holy Spirit, the power of God, comes into your life, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that dudamus, dynamite power, right? You can't help but change. The transformed life, the changed life is evidence that you have received salvation. Do you understand me? Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I got that far, but anyway, let's see where we are. Forty days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's right. So we talked about the theocratic kingdom, universal kingdom, spiritual kingdom, theocratic kingdom. The end of the theocratic kingdom brought about the mystery kingdom. Hmm. In the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd who won't believe in parables. Because having eyes, they will not see. Having ears, they will not hear. And his disciples asked him later, why, why would you speak to them in parables? Why, why would you confuse? They're confused already. And they won't believe. But it is given to you, speaking to the disciples then, and to you this morning who are sitting here, O Theophilus, lovers of God. But to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And so he begins to talk about the mystery kingdom, specifically in Matthew chapter 13. He goes to all of these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And we said there's one word that would describe the kingdom of heaven. What's that one word? Christendom, Christendom, the mystery kingdom. Christendom. Because it's comprised of both true believers and make-believers. The true gospel and false gospel. And those are not my words. And if you have a problem digesting that, well, you take it up with God in his word. Read Matthew chapter 13, because that's very specifically what Jesus describes with regard to the mystery kingdom. Christian, dumb. But the true body of Christ, that spiritual kingdom, is we call the body of Christ, right? The body of Christ. There's a difference, yeah. And then lastly, which we haven't gone into yet, but that's the question that disciples will be asking in a moment. Will you at this time bring in the kingdom to Israel? Which kingdom was that? The millennial messianic kingdom. That Jesus Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years. That has been an understanding of the church with regard to the text in Revelation 20 for almost 2,000 years. But there seems to be such confusion about it today. 
such conflict, such argumentation. It's a period of a thousand years of peace, which we can't stop arguing over. <laughs> the millennial messianic kingdom. That's what they'll be talking about. So, so as you listen, I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but I'm a teacher. If you're looking for a sermonette and a feel-good experience, I can offer some other opportunities for you. Okay? But if you want to learn the Word of God, and you want to study the Word of God, and you want to know the Word of God, then you come here. Okay? Because I'll teach you. It's important that you know when you're reading the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what kingdom is he talking about? And then you'll say, ah, of course, of course. Otherwise, for most people, there's tremendous confusion about what he's referring to. Speaking of the kingdom, verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Again, as he closed the book, the gospel of, Act, of Luke, he begins here in Acts. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Baptism save you? No more than circumcision would save you when the Judaizers would go around and say, no, you have to. It's Jesus plus the law of Moses. It's Jesus plus baptism. It's Jesus plus... Is it Jesus plus anything? No. You, listen, listen. Paul said, let them be a curse. Let them be an athema who puts anything alongside the faith in Christ to receive salvation. It's faith in Christ alone. Sola fide. Sola Christore. Right? It's faith in Christ alone. How do we know that? So the scriptura, the scriptures alone, right? And to whose glory? To God's glory alone, right? So that's what you need to understand, that, yes, baptism will not save you. There's been a lot of people who've been water baptized and not saved. They might have felt pressured, or they, they just wanted to join this country club. It's a nice club. They're nice people, and I can do good business here at first. I mean, you know... <laughs> But that's true of a lot of people. They've experienced water baptism, but they've never experienced the baptismo of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is what saves, not baptism of water. Otherwise, a thief on the cross had a problem. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I can't do anything. You've got to be baptized. You know, did he say that? No. This day you will be with me in paradise. Abraham's bosom, otherwise known as Sheol in the Old Testament or Hades in the New. Most people don't have that understanding either. Only temporarily, after those 40 days of post-resurrection experience, what happened? Those post-resurrection visions of Christ, what happened after that? And, and what did he empty out? Abraham's bosom, paradise. That place of Sheol or Hades that was held for the righteous dead. Uh, there's no purgatory. Sorry to say. Where am I? Let's see. John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Which kingdom? The messianic millennial kingdom is what they're referring to here. And that was their question. Why? What did they want to do? Rain. What did, what did James and John ask mom to ask Jesus? Let me sit on your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. I want power. Isn't that what all politicians want? Yeah. Poly, ticks. Poly meaning many ticks, blood-sucking creatures. That's what they are. All, all politicians, they want power, and they want to maintain that power and keep that power, right? 
James and John knew not what they asked. He said, you can't drink the cup of suffering that I'm about to drink. And what did they say? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We can, we can, we can. And then they saw who was on his right and who was on his left as he entered into his kingdom. And who was that? The two thieves on the cross. Sometimes we know not what we ask for. We need to be careful what we ask for from the Lord. And then he said to them, but you, you will drink this cup now that you've asked for it. And what was that cup? It was a cup of suffering. It was a cup of martyrdom. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, are you going to restore the kingdom? He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And I said last week when we were together, that was then, but this is... And where do we go? First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. You know that text, right? And what did Paul indicate for us then? We are to know the signs and the times that God has appointed we are children of the day and not of the night. Children of the light and not of the darkness so that they should come upon us as a thief in the night. You see, you should be aware of the times of the season that we're in. This is, this is the season, singular, of the times, plural, that indicate Jesus is coming. We just sang that. Do you believe that? Most of you don't believe that, do you? Do you believe Jesus is coming soon? Yes. All right, all right. You got to get ready. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, beloved, it's true. I can give you an apologetic in the evidence for the fact that we are so close. <sighs> I think I smell his fragrance in the air. I feel his breath on my neck. It's that close. Yeah. But we know the times and the seasons now. The seasons, singular times, plural. Verse 8. But you shall receive power, that dunamis power, that dynamite, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, this is the promise of the Holy Spirit to empower them for ministry, to empower them to be the witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, in the ends of the earth, to empower you to be witnesses for Christ. How many, what percentage of the church bear witness of Jesus Christ out there in the world today? That's not a lot of power. 2%? Share their faith on a regular basis? 2%? Where's that power? Now, we know, and I'll get into it in more extensively when we move into chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost have been fulfilled, that, that it records for us at the end of John's gospel that Jesus came in the upper room post-resurrection appearance on the very same day in which he was erected, the first day of the resurrection. What day of the week was that? It was a Sunday. That evening, Sunday morning, they found the tomb to be empty. The stone was rolled away, cast into the sea, right? Ripple, 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 right? Ah. But that evening, they were all gathered together, and Jesus came in among them and said, Shalom, Mishpukah. Right? Mashiach Nagi, the Messiah, the King of Israel, came and wished them peace. Shalom. Peace with God. Peace of God. Peace in God. That's the fullness of that peace that he's offering, that shalom, right? And, and then he, he breathed upon them. And what happened? He said, receive ye now the Holy Spirit. Not like last night when I had pizza with garlic, and, you know, if I breathe on you, then you do, oh, my goodness, you know, <laughs> right? No, no, no. Do you think when Jesus breathed upon them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit, something happened? Yeah. Life began for man with a kiss from God, didn't it? 
He created Adam with the dust of the ground. And then I, you know, the text says that he, he the Ruach HaKodesh, he breathed upon them, but I think he brought them to life with a kiss. You know, you can't help but kiss an adorable baby, can you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not only politicians like kissing babies. I love kissing babies. Babies are so beautiful, so precious, so innocent. Hmm? Life, the first life came with a kiss. The new life that he promised us, a spiritual life came as he breathed upon them. He gave them another kiss, I believe. Now, do you think they got saved at that time? Yeah. Remember, there's three Greek prepositions used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The first one is para. Para meaning he comes alongside. He's called a parakletos. Kletos being called para alongside. He's called alongside. So Jesus was with them, alongside them. How long? Three years. A little, little more than three years. He's with them, right? Para, with them. Before your salvation, every one of you can remember that the Holy Spirit was with you, guiding you, leading you, showing you, pointing you, opening your heart and your life, working within you both to will and to do. But then, then, once you see Jesus for who he truly is, and you repent, and you surrender your life to him, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And that's that Greek preposition, en, like our English word, in. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell. Receive ye now the Holy Spirit. And he breathed upon them. Did the Holy Spirit come in them, Anna? Yes. Yeah. Just like he did you. Yeah, the Holy Spirit came in them, to dwell within them. Now, now he tells them at the end of Luke's gospel, this is 40 days later, he says, now go tarry in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Now there's another subsequent work so prior, uh, after salvation, subsequent to salvation, that the Holy Spirit has to perform in your life. For what purpose? To empower you for ministry, to empower you to fulfill the calling in your life, the will he has for you. And so he came up, he, came, he said, wait until you come in Jerusalem, and then you'll epi, the Holy Spirit will fall upon you. A lot of Christians today are surely on the right side of the cross, but they're on the wrong side of Pentecost. They're on the right side of the cross, they're on the wrong side of Pentecost, and what I mean by that is they haven't really yielded themselves to the filling of the Holy Spirit to empower them for ministry. Why? Mm, well, in some cases, they just want to live their own life. Oh, I want to know that I have fire insurance. I want to know that I'm saved. But I want to live my life. I don't want to live his life. I have an expectation. I have it all planned out. I want to... Mm. And then you hinder the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, don't you? Yeah. But he was telling them that the promise of that Holy Spirit to come upon them. Verse 9... Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and the cloud receives them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. When he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths at the Migdaladar, right? But now, on his ascension, he's wrapped in a cloud. Oh, and by the way, he's coming back in the clouds. Much different from those clouds, the next group of clouds will be storm clouds, dark clouds, ominous clouds. What is the day of the Lord to you, Amos would say, to the children of Israel crying out, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Don't you know you're so hypocritical? There's such hypocrisy in your life that that day will not benefit you at all. 
And there are many today, prophecy hunters, you know, seeking the Lord's return, but yet living such wretched lifestyles. Jesus made it clear in John's Gospel, 16th chapter, that if you love me, you will obey me. You can't call me Lord, Lord, and not do as I command you to do. You see, yeah, a lot of people deceiving themselves. But oh, we're longing for the day of the Lord because we know our lives, our lives are surrendered. We're yielded. You know what's necessary to be ready for the rapture, for the return of Jesus Christ? You know what's necessary to be prepared? To be one who would go? Because Jesus himself said in Luke, recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, pray always. Watch ye therefore, and pray always. What? That you'll be found acceptable when the Son of Man returns, that you will not be caught like a thief in the night. What's required for me to be found acceptable? What? Submitted. Submitted? What? It's about a relationship. Listen to me. Listen to me. When Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, he's not talking about perfection of performance, is he? Can I perform perfectly? No. I'm your aggravation, aren't I? When I come home, I announce it. Aggravation's home. Right? <laughs> but we love it, don't we? We do, we do, we do. Yeah. So, so it's, not, it's not a perfection of performance. That's an impossibility, right? No PC blade. <laughs> Right? No, no, no. It, listen to me. Listen to me closely. It's a, it's a perfection of relationship. Now listen very closely. What, who is number one in your heart? That's all you have to answer that question. If Jesus is number one in your heart, the number one passion of your life, you're ready. It's that simple, you see. But if there is something else and Jesus himself made it clear. He said, if you love mother, father, son, or daughter, brother, or sister, more than you love me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And unfortunately, the problem isn't loving people too much today. We love stuff. You see, we were created to be lovers of people and users of stuff, right? Today, we're just the opposite. We love stuff, and we use people. Terrible, terrible. Perfection of relationship. And listen, you don't have to tell me, you don't even have to tell the person you came with this morning because you and Jesus know what the answer is. And if the answer isn't Jesus, then change your life. Change your priorities. Get things straightened out now before it's too late. Hmm. Who should, who should go see the Left Behind movie, Roger? Those who are going to be left behind. <laughs> Just read the scriptures and fall in love with him more and more. And allow, listen to me, and allow Jesus to sit upon the throne of your heart. Now, who needs to get off that throne? Maybe. You do. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yes, the same Jesus who was taken up from you, in like manner as you say him go, he will return the same way. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Abilet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath-day journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where there were staying Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these continued in one accord. Were they driving a Honda, Anthony? 
no, 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 no. I want to go of one mind, one purpose, one will. You know, that's what's supposed to take place in marriage, beloved. Right? My wife is so different from me. I don't understand that. You know, I've been married twice now. I have a wife in heaven. I have a wife on earth. And you know what I know about women? No. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm learning all over again what I don't know. It's a wonderful thing, right? But we are so, we are so different, men and women, so different from one another, aren't we? Now, now David and I, we're, the, we're halves of the same kind. I can understand you, David. You can understand me, right? Oh, but boy, understanding a woman, that's, that's, a, that's an alien, a different creature. Oh, but Gail and Frankie, the same halves of the same kind. You know, it's, but then God uniquely wants Adam and Steve? No. Boy, it's cra- is it insane today? You, you don't understand it's a resurrection of these demonic forces that were so existent in the Dark Ages. Oh, yeah, they were false gods. Baal, Ashtoreth, Nemosh, Molech. They were all false gods. But behind all of those false entities were demonic forces. What kept those demonic forces at bay was the gospel of Jesus Christ. What kept those demonic forces at bay from our society at large was the fact that we were one nation that was one time under God. When the little cricket at the end of the wonderful world of Disney could come out and say, let your conscience be your guide, right? Remember that? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You're too young. But if you're older, you know, and we laid on the living room floor and leaning out upon our elbows and watching the wonderful world of Disney and Bonanza and the Wild Kingdom. Remember those days? That's when, that's when television was innocent. It was good. Today, there's no redeeming value in it at all. But the little cricket would come out. At the end of the wonderful world of Disney, it said, let your conscience be your guide. Now, why could he say that? Because the majority of the nation's conscience was informed by the Judeo-Christian Old Testament, New Testament philosophies of life, faith, meaning, purpose. And so we had a common conscience. You say that today to people, oh my, whew, who knows what you're going to get, right? But it was Adam and Eve, so different from one another. Four times in the Bible, once before the fall, three times after the fall, God records for us that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul gives us an understanding when he records it for the last time in Ephesians. This is a great mysterion of which I speak concerning Christ and his church. How did you become one with Christ? Through the person of the Holy Spirit. How do I become one with my wife? As we both purpose to live in one accord, seeking God's will, God's purpose, God's mind, God's calling for our life, and we become more one as the Holy Spirit is leading us. You see that? I'll give you the secret to marriage right now. My wife, way over here, and I'm way over there. As far as the east is from the west, we're so different, right? But we're both focused on one thing, ourselves, each other. And as we are growing in that sanctification process, becoming more like him, more of his will, his purposes, his mind, we're not only drawing close to him, we're drawing closer to each other. That's the secret of marriage. 
If you really want a fulfilling marriage, if you really want your marriage to, to be its, reach its full potential as God designed it, it's when each of you individually, singularly are seeking God, putting him upon the throne of your heart. Is marriage about making me happy? It's about making me holy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing can sanctify you more than a marriage relationship. You single people, you don't know what you're doing for aggravation. <laughs> Verse 14, these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary. Last mention of Jesus' mother Mary is here in Acts 1. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brother. Jesus had brothers? You mean Mary had other children other than Jesus? Yes, yeah. yeah, she did. And there's historical evidence con to confirm that. But you can go to Mark's gospel. I think it's uh, chapter 6 where that's confirmed for you. Verse 3, where Mary and Jesus' brothers came to take him away. Why? They thought he was crazy. They're coming to take you away, haha. -ha. <laughs> and what did he say? Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? But those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. You want to be Jesus' brother, sister, favorite? Then just do his will. Amen? Yeah. Verse 15. Now, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The number of the names is about 120. And he said, men and brethren... This scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, falling headlong. He burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. Horrible sight, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it just presents such a horrible mental picture, doesn't it? that this man was hanging from a tree so long that his body and his stomach swelled so much that when the rope or the branch broke, he hit the ground, burst open. Whew. That's what sin will do to you, won't it? It's so corrupting. That's why the Bible likens leaven to sin. Now, don't you like to bake bread? You know, anybody baking any challah bread? for the season, you know, the Jewish bread, you braid it, you make one for you, one for Pastor Red. One for you, one for Pastor Red. I love bread. You're darn tootin', I want my gluten, okay? Yeah. But challah is the Jewish bread that is made during Pentecost, or during uh, Passover. Uh, but and nonetheless, unleavened bread doesn't have any leaven in it. Why? Leaven is a type of sin, but why is leaven a type of sin when you put it in the dough? A little leaven, leaven is the whole lump. What happens? It, it expediates the corruption or the rotting process of the dough, and it swells up, right? It corrupts by puffing up. Well, that's what happened to Judas. That corruption puffed him up so much that when he burst open, like Bubba did with that balloon, you know? <laughs> Now, what they're going to be doing is trying to find a replacement. A lot of churches will have a nominating committee, you know, a pastor search committee. <laughs> uh, well, only God can determine who is to fulfill what calling as he empowers. Isn't that true? Your academic credentials, 
I don't care what institution you may have graduated from, what certificate of your uh, studying and accomplishments have been verified. Uh, it, it won't make you what only God alone can make you. You know, if you're looking for a deacon in the church, then you look for men who are already acting as deacons. They're already working to help take care of the physical well-being of the church. They're very concerned about the facilities. And is it safe? Is it comfortable? And so you can see very clearly that God is already working in that man. And then you look to see if they fulfill the requirements of that role. And then you're just affirming what God is already doing. The same thing is true of elders in the church. You, you look for men who are already ministering to the body, are very concerned about the well-being of others within the church. Men ministering to men and discipling them, encouraging them. Men who are evangelizing everyone. They go, we evangelize, we evangelize everyone, don't we? Men evangelize men and women. Women evangelize men and women. But when we disciple, we disciple man too, and woman too. Now, I used to be able to say that, that it was very safe to do it that way. It's not today, is it? No, no. <laughs> full of surprises. But nonetheless, they were going to give God the option of two to replace Judas. But it is interesting that when Luke is recording this, the words of Peter, that Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit spoke. So he's, he's not saying that Isaiah spoke or Daniel spoke or, or Samuel spoke, but he's saying the Word of God spoke or the Holy Spirit spoke or the Lord spoke. Now, you can say that about the Bible, can't you? Why? Because even though it was written by 40 different authors, Luke being the only Gentile, the other 39 were Jew, 40 different authors, 1,500 years, 66 books, it's the Word of God. Why? Because the principal author is the Holy Spirit. These human instruments were just used. Yes, their personality and temperament, all those idiosyncrasies of theirs, he used them to write what they wrote, but he guided them in what they wrote, and therefore, all Scripture is what? God breathed, inspired of God. There's an attack upon the Word of God today in the contemporary, in the progressive Christianity of today. It's so heretical. Be careful. The first attack upon the Word of God, when did that happen? In the garden, what did the serpent say? <laughs> Now, well, you know what they're saying? There? No, that's the words of John. That's the words of Paul. That's not the words. You can't say the Bible says. You can't say God said that. These are men wrote that. Whew, boy, slippery slope, isn't it? Isn't it? I'm going to stake everything I believe, and I'm going to stake my eternity upon the word of God, not upon the word of men. For he was numbered, verse 17, with us and obtained part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity of sin and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. All of his entrails gushed out, corrupted by puffing up. <laughs> and it became known to all dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let another live on or take his office as it says. Verse 21, Therefore, of these men who accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, being from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname was Justice, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry. The apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go into his own place. What place might that be? Hell. Listen, there is a literal heaven and there is a literal hell. Make no mistake about that. And who in the New Testament spoke more about the judgment of hell than any other? Jesus himself. Hmm. Verse 26, and they cast their lots. Rolled dice? After they receive the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to cast lots? And the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Tell me, Braytel, what are the mighty works of the apostle Matthias? What do you know about Matthias? Herbert Lockyer's, all in the Bible series. Anybody have that in their library? It's a great series. I pulled off his volume on all the men in the Bible. Okay, he'll tell me what I can learn about O Theophilus and Matthias. He had quite a bit to say about Theophilus. You know how much he had to say about Matthias? Not that much. We believe he was martyred in Ethiopia. That's all we know. But we're not, we can't be even certain of that. But we don't know what he did. Lord, we're going to give you a choice. Is it A or is it B? Barsabas or Matthias? And the Lord said, neither. <laughs> the Lord said, Paul. Who said it? The Lord said, Paul. Paul is going to take the place. Why? Uh, Paul, obviously, Paul. As we get into the last two-thirds of the book of Acts, it's all about the ministry of the apostle Paul, chosen by God to take the place of Judas, not Matthias. So be careful when you give God limited choices. Is it, or is it, Lord, thy will be done. Wh whatever it is, Lord. My pragmatism gets in the way so often of what you want to do in a mysterious, supernatural way, Lord. So help me, Lord, not to lean upon my own understanding, but in all of your, my ways, acknowledge you. Look to you, Lord. Let you be the Lord. Amen? Well, that's all I have to say this morning. <laughs> I ended early. Listen, David led us in that chorus. We will wait, wait, wait on the Lord. So if you're inclined to wait, and it's unlike anything else you do, you come at 6 o'clock. Don't come with your prayer list. This is not a time to pray through your prayer list. We, we do that 7 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock at night. We do it throughout the day. Pray without ceasing, right? But, but 6 o'clock is a time where you come just to sit before the Lord, and we want to focus on who he is, his attributes, how wonderful he is, this darling of heaven, as the scriptures refer to him. And then sometimes we break out in a song that glorifies him. Not, not listen, so much of the music of today is anthropocentric. It's man-centered, should not be. It should be all Christ-centric, Christ-centered. So if we're going to break out in song, we ask the Holy Spirit to lead us, a song that would glorify him, praise him for who he is, for what he's done. If we break out in the word because he loves hearing his word spoken back. Kurt, isn't it wonderful when your many daughters, 
when one of them speaks back the wisdom you tried to impart to them to you, and you say, they're getting it. They're getting it. Praise the Lord. You know? Well, how our Father loves it when we speak his word back to him. So that's the purpose of coming tonight. Now, now, if you're uncomfortable sitting still for an hour and not hearing a word, well, maybe you shouldn't come. No, maybe you should. Practice that, that discipline of divine silence. It's so wonderful. God never speaks more loudly than in the silence. We have too much noise around us constantly where we don't have that opportunity to focus our mind and our attention upon him. But you'll have that tonight, 6 o'clock. We'll experience it together. Amen? Shall we stand? Pastor David?